Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week five of our study on the work and life of Jesus Christ, also known as Christology. And for today, what we're going to study is the young Jesus, before he became an adult and started his ministry. What happened during that time period and the significance of it? So there's very little that we know about what happened in the young years of Jesus. But there's only one time that is recorded in the Bible for us to study, and that's where we're going to focus on today. So let's go ahead and read the scripture for today. We'll be in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41 to the end of the chapter. The word says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now remember this thought that Jesus said, because we're going to come back to this. I had to be in my father's house. But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's it. That's all we have for the childhood of Jesus Christ. Anything beyond this is not biblical. So let me read you a quote that somebody gave regarding this story. Listen to these words before we get into the actual study. It is remarkable that the first words of Jesus quoted in the gospel narrative are these words, in which he so clearly refers to his divine sonship, and in which he points to his life's vocation to be about his father's business, to serve and glorify him in all things and at all times. The words indicate a divine inevitability. Jesus must be busy with the interests of his father. With him it is, however, not a case of external compulsion. His whole nature yearns to serve and obey his Father voluntarily. So we have just this small piece of what happened in the life of Jesus when he was 12 years old. And there are other passages that explain other stories of Jesus' childhood that are not in the Bible, but they are not biblical, because they are actually Gnostic. 
And if you don't know what Gnosticism is, it's basically something that denies the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. The Gnostic movement is very old, since not too long after Jesus walked the earth, and it is heretical. It blasphemes the name of God in so many ways and distorts the truth of the gospel. So they made up stories about how when he was young, he would uh, use his power in trivial ways, and it seems very irresponsible for Jesus to do that. Even though he was a child, he is still God. And so God cannot deny his own nature and be naughty, you know, and be a rascal and do all these fanciful stories of him not being responsible with his power. That doesn't sound like God at all. So obviously that isn't real. But this is the only true passage that we have from his childhood. So one important thing we need to note that we're going to answer near the end of the story is the reaction of the people in the temple. When they heard Jesus speaking, they were astonished and they were amazed by him. So the first thing to note is when it comes to Jesus' parents. So they were, of course, we know they are godly people, right? We know that they are the ones who listened to God, that they obeyed him whenever the angels commanded them. Mary gave her song like we talked about last time with the Magnificat. And they also were demonstrating their faith by observing all of the feasts and all of the events that happen in the Jewish calendar and in the law of Moses. So that's a very good thing. And they stayed for the fullness of it. They were involved in all of it, which is very good. So well, what you notice is that, how did they lose him? And so many people maybe skip this part, or we don't really look too hard at this scripture, but how did Mary and Joseph lose Jesus? I can imagine they're, you know, halfway back to Nazareth, and they they look at each other like, we lost the Son of God. What are we going to do? You know, and then they have to <laughs> they have to turn back and go find Jesus in Jerusalem. But how could they have lost their son? Well, it describes that they were in a caravan. And many times, the entire family, all your relatives, cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody would go together in one large group. And some of these caravans would reach hundreds of people. So it's not too far of an imagination to think that Jesus was not side by side with Mary and Joseph, because so often we read this story and we think that, you know, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were on a donkey and they went to Jerusalem. No, it wasn't just them. It was a huge group of people. But we also try to compare it to our current society because you're an adult in our legal system by the age of 18. But in the Jewish community, you have what's called a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah if you're female. And that is at the age of 13. And so at that point, that is the celebration of you becoming an adult. You know, so back then, for you to be 12 years old, you're almost an adult. And so they're not helicopter parents. You know, they're not hovering over you. They're not overprotective. And besides, they know who he is. They know that he is the son of God, and he can take care of himself. 
They're still responsible for him, but they're not going to worry so much about his well-being because he is God, and God will take care of himself. While that's an interesting fact, let's look at the reality of what happened in the temple. So they were impressed with Jesus, that he spoke very wisely, and he received their wisdom and asked a bunch of questions. So obviously there's something different about Jesus than anyone else, right? Obviously not only the godly nature within him, because there are two natures within Jesus. He has his divine nature and he has his human nature, right? The knowledge of Jesus is radically different from everyone else's because of the condition of the rest of humanity. You see, in the fall, the effects of sin permeated the entire human person. So not only did we introduce death and decay into the world through Adam and Eve, but we also became limited in our ability to do things. The fall had a significant impact upon our minds. Because we have a sinful nature now, we don't have as sharp as a mind as the perfection of Adam and Eve did. In theology, the effect of the fall on the mind is called the noetic effect of sin. This word comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind. So our theological belief is that sin clouds the mind and impairs our ability to think clearly. How often is it that we intend to do the right thing, right? We want to obey God, but how often is it that we get distracted? Or how is, often is it that we feel weak, and then we can't fulfill what we said we wanted to do, because something stopped us from doing it? Or rather, the temptation entered in, we became paralyzed by it, and we succumbed to it. That's not thinking clearly, right? When a Christian purposely lies, when a Christian purposely cheats on their spouse, when a Christian purposely chooses their own will over God's will, that's not thinking clearly. We have that impairment within us. We still have the capacity for reason, but yet at the same time, all of us are given to making mistakes in our thinking. Even though we have the same Bible, we so often as Christians disagree on stuff, sometimes very seriously, on the meaning of certain things in the Bible. There are some things that are absolutely non-negotiable, right? For example, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? We cannot deny that that happened. We cannot deny the incarnation. We cannot deny the fact that he was a human being with a physical body, as the Gnostics do. We cannot deny the, that grace is in our lives, and grace is what saves us. We can't deny that we were predestined from the beginning of the world. See, those things are non-negotiable. There are some things that are negotiable. Even this study, your interpretation of what I'm saying could be negotiable. Things like the end times, right? When the millennium was going to come. Are we amillennials? Are we premillennial? Are we postmillennial? And the beautiful thing about this is that we can disagree on these things, and yet it doesn't change the narrative of the Bible in such a way where we don't believe the same thing. 
the core doctrine doesn't change, and yet we can debate on these other things. I love how God did that on purpose. Kind of like how when we study the world before the flood, what was that like? I am so fascinated by the idea of what the pre-Diluvian world was like before the flood came. But the Bible doesn't really talk about it. And I can have a theory about what it looked like. You could have a different theory about what it looked like. And it doesn't change the story of the Bible. And I love that. Part of this study is non-negotiable, as in who Jesus is. But the meaning of what he did could be interpreted differently. All of us fail to apply ourselves as seriously as we could to the study of Scripture because we allow so many other things to get in the way. We also come to the text of Scripture with biases that are difficult to overcome. And we don't want to come before the Lord with these biases because it clouds our judgment when we to understanding God's Word. So we could say in summation that the very act of thinking has been weakened by sin. And I think that's a fair assessment to say, and that's something I think we can all agree with. Our ability to think clearly in God's image has been tainted because of sin. So before Jesus, no one's mind had functioned apart from these noetic effects of sin. Because remember, Jesus was not weakened by the effects of sin because he had no sin in him. He was human, but he did not have the sinful nature because he is divine. So he was not impacted by the original sin that you and I suffer with. So therefore, as a 12-year-old, he could think more clearly and more profoundly than the most learned theologians of his day. That's why they were so impressed with him, because he was God, yes, but he also was able to think clearly as a man. And that's beautiful. So some say that Jesus was so profound in the temple because he was God, right? And God is omniscient. He knows all things. But here's something we need to remember. He was God incarnate, and God is omniscient. But touching his human nature, Jesus was not given a divine brain. He did not have his full attributes of his godhood. They were limited, and he purposely limited himself in order to interact with the world as a man, fully. That's what we call the kenosis, which is in the New Testament. The kenosis, the emptying of himself, as it's described. It doesn't mean he sacrificed any of his attributes because he would, fall, he would stop being God, but at the same time, he did not always use them because he wanted to experience life as a man. It had to be done that way. It had to be done that way because he could be our high priest who can relate with us in all ways, who has been tempted as we have, who has been going through so much trouble and abuse and hunger and thirst and needing sleep, all the things that we deal with, he can relate with us. And so he did not endow himself with omniscience as a man. In his human nature, he did not have the divine attribute of omniscience. The divine nature did not communicate 
the divine attribute of omniscience, to the human nature. If he was, if he was God, except for the purpose of being rhetorical, why would he need to ask questions? If he was God, and he was a newborn baby, he wouldn't need somebody to care for him. But he allowed that to happen so he can experience the fullness of being human. According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was brought to the temple at the age of 12, and after his family leaves, then they don't notice him for a full day, and he was found in the temple after they searched for him for three days, right? We saw that. The teachers were amazed at his understanding, and when Mary asks him why he did this, first of all, we have to understand that what Jesus did was not malicious. It wasn't in disobedience to his parents, because if he was being disobedient to his parents, then he would be a sinner, and Jesus Christ never sinned. So how do we rationalize that? He allowed himself to be separated from his parents. They, Whether or not they knew he was gone to begin with is one thing, but why did he stay behind? Why did he do what he did and yet not be able to sin? Jesus is politely rebuking his mother when he says this, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's rebuking his mother for not knowing what she should have known in light of all the revelation she had received. She knew who Jesus was. She knew exactly why Jesus came. That's why she's saying the Magnificat. She knew exactly who this child was and what he was going to do. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. And he knew what he had to do at such a young age. And it's so clear in the way that he spoke to these men in the temple that he was already learning, if he not already knew, what he came to do. He was subordinate, first and foremost, to God the Father not only in respect of his being, but in respect of the work he was called to do at the age of 12. So it should not have surprised Mary and Joseph, it was what I'm saying, for Jesus to go to the temple and be learning about these things, because this is what he came to do. So there's some ambiguity in the translation of the words Jesus spoke, because this is what the Greek literally says. Did you not know that I must be in the of my father? That's very an odd statement, right? It's like there's a word in the middle that's missing. Did you not know that I must be in the blank of my father? So we don't really know exactly what this interpretation is supposed to mean, but there are three suggestions. Jesus is either saying that he must be among those of his father's house, that is, the Jewish teachers of the law. Jesus says that he must be of his father's business. Or Jesus says that he must be in his father's house, that is, must be involved with instruction in divine things. So, no, it's not very clear as to what Jesus is actually trying to say here, because the Greek is kind of broken. Now, again, this is one of those things that we don't have to agree on. But personally, I'm going with the second option. Jesus says he must be about his father's business. Whatever God is telling him to do, 
he needs to obey it. And I think that's where he's going with this. And if there's any sort of debate you all want to have on this, please send me an email, ask me some questions, and I'd be happy to debate with you on this. I love that kind of stuff. Now, here's another thing. In verse 49, these are the first words that Jesus ever says that we, that we see in the Bible. All of the other words of Christ that are recorded were spoken after the beginning of his ministry. But assuming the correctness of the translation... I must be in my Father's house. These words must be significant in our understanding of the person and work of Christ. He knew exactly what he came to do, and he was preparing for it at such a young age. It is not unreasonable to assume that some of the teachers mentioned in this text, teachers who were amazed at Jesus' understanding and answers, were still alive when he began his public ministry 18 years later. Have you thought about that? Like, oh, I remember that kid. He was the one in the temple asking all these questions. He was remarkable, and look at him now. He's performing miracles. I never really thought about it like that until I was going through this study, that people knew who he was when he was a young boy. Well, here's something I want to point out. There is a stark contrast in the way that they handled him. When we see him as a young man, we see people are most impressed with him, right? And who are the people that are usually in the temple? Scribes and Pharisees. But yet when Jesus is a man, he enters into the temple and people hate him. These teachers, these scribes, these Pharisees, they hate him and they're largely hostile toward him. Why is there such a difference in response to young Jesus and older Jesus? Personally, I think, again, this is debatable, right? But personally, I think it's because at the age of 12, legally, he's a minor. He is not a threat to them. He is a boy, and a boy has no legal rights. But as an adult, as a man, as one who calls himself rabbi, he is directly a threat to them because he considers himself peers with them in many ways. And so that's threatening right there. And so their way of living, their position in society, being called hypocrites is really damaging to them. And so we have not only that Jesus was much more direct and much more firm in condemning the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, but from the very beginning, they hated him because he is a man, and legally, he has the authority to say those things, and it was, a, it was damaging to them. That's what I think. Here's something else to think about. When we think about noetic effect of sin in our lives, how does that, which is the corruption of our mind, right, how does this cause doctrinal disagreements among Bible-believing Christians. That's why we have so many denominations, right? Where we have branches of understanding of the Bible. Now, I firmly believe that, as most people do who are Christian, they believe that what they believe is, the, is right. And at the same time, there's two things we have to understand. We don't know what we don't know. And we hope that we have the right answers. But secondly is, I firmly believe that 
since God is the author of the Bible, every author, human or God, intend their literature to be understood a particular way. In other words, I firmly believe that there is only one right answer in the Bible. There are a lot of different interpretations of different things, and they sometimes conflict with each other, and we will disagree on doctrine and things like that, and some of them are pretty significant. You know, for example, the understanding of baptism, the understanding of grace, so on and so forth. But I firmly believe that there is only one right answer. And I hope to th that I have the right answer. We so quickly disagree with each other on certain things because of the corruption of our mind, our biases, our stubbornness. And I think part of it is that as well, is that pride that's within us. We allow the noetic effects of sin to contribute to our disagreements because of pride and arrogance and not wanting to be wrong. And that causes all sorts of problems later on down the line. So as we conclude, there's a couple of things I want you to walk away with today. So first of all, although Jesus was the Son of God at the age of 12, Jesus submitted to his earthly parents. We need to strive to demonstrate the same kind of humble submission to those in authority over us. And that means everyone. That's hard to do sometimes, especially when we see the world leaders of today and they are the worst people. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says that we are to be subject to all governing authorities because all authority is established by God. Yes, even the bad ones. So there's something we have to remember. We are to be subject to all earthly authority, except when it conflicts with the word of God. If it conflicts with the Word of God, God's Word comes first. Think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? King Nebuchadnezzar built that statue they're supposed to bow to. Everyone did, except them. And when they confronted him about it, what did they say? It's like, yeah, you commanded us to bow to that idol, but we have a God in heaven, and his command is that we do not bow to anyone but him. So if you throw us in the fiery furnace, he will protect us. But even if he doesn't, we refuse to bow to your idol. That's the kind of stance we need to have. And so when it comes to certain non-negotiables of the Bible, we must be in complete submission to the Bible over man. But otherwise, we are in submission to our governing authorities as well. And the second thing. Because Jesus accomplished the work given to him by his Father, we can now also call God our Father. So think about that. And he was preparing for that since he was a child. Give praise to God today for this amazing privilege to be called his child. That is amazing and such a privilege. We have no idea how privileged we are. But I hope that as we study the Word of God, we learn more and more how privileged we are. And that should change the way that we live our life. That's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed this study, and we'll pick this up next time when we talk about the baptism of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.